Let's pray. Jesus, we gather tonight to remember um, what we call Good Friday. And, and it's hard to say the words good and crucifixion and not, and not feel compelled to know that it's good for me. Amen. But Jesus, this cost you everything. And so as we gather tonight, Lord, let us appreciate uh, all that you have done for us, all that you have achieved for us, all that you have conquered for us. Let this not be just a rote uh, habit, but rather something that is deeply life-giving tonight. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We're going to stay in Luke 23. If you've got a Bible or in the Bible app, if you need one, there's one on the chair in front of you, or if you're in the front row underneath you, there's Bibles. Anyhow, hopefully you can find one. So last Sunday, we talked about... Uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem and, and the shouts of the crowds who were calling for him to be king. But Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem for an entirely other purpose. Yes, he's king, but he knows that those shouts of Hosanna, those things that, that took place as he entered in, are not the way to his throne. Amen. And so here we are tonight looking at his pathway to the, to, to, the, to the throne himself, to us. I'm going to put this on the screen tonight. The crucifixion beyond the events that take place at Golgotha are all the people surrounding Jesus and what their responses are to the crucifixion. I want to see that tonight, what their responses are. And inevitably, we have to ask, well, what is our response? But around the events, we read through these these things that take place, and what we also find is that there is a large gathering of people, and then we get little snapshots of human reactions to the, to the crucifixion. And so Luke 23, we're going to pick up in verse 25, some of the passages we read earlier. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid, him on, laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed with him a great multitude of the people and the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And so there's a lot of people that are surrounding this, right? We see they grab Simon of Cyrene, they make him carry the cross. But there's a multitude, it says, surrounding him. There are women, women that are mourning and lamenting him. There are Roman soldiers who are crucifying him. There are Jewish religious leaders who have been calling for his death. And so all around Jesus are this, this kind of vast variety of people. Verse 28, he says, but turning to them, meaning the mourning women, but turning to them, he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Do not weep for me, he says. So imagine you have these lamenting, mourning women around you, and, and you're being crucified, and yet as you look at them, you tell them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, right? Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, it takes a little understanding of who these Jewish women were. And there were women that used to participate in mourning and lamenting as a part of their religious tradition, Kind of like coming to a Good Friday service, sometimes it's just a part of our religious tradition, right? Maybe it's we're here and we're here all the time and, and, and we love participating in 
the broader church and the gathering of the church and the worship of the church, the prayers, the word, whatever it might be. But sometimes we just go through the motions. And the women that are mourning and lamenting aren't people necessarily that even know Jesus. These are religious Jewish mourners. And they would wail and weep and mourn at the death of people. When you see, as Jesus enters into a town and Lazarus has died, you see the mourners that are there outside. And so these are the religious kind of doing their duty, if you will. So that odd statement kind of begins to make more sense. He goes on, he says this, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. For they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will they happen? What will happen when it's dry? And so there's this Jewish proverb, what will, if they do this when the wood is green, like when things are good, right? And Jesus is saying, when I'm with you, right, when things are good, what about when things go dry, right? And so there was this proverb that would be used, and he says this, he says, listen, don't lament for me, cry for yourselves and for your children, because there's a time coming when doing your religious duty is not enough. And so just to go through the motions and just be kind of a, particip a participant in a religious gathering says it's not enough. In fact, when it's not enough, when that time comes and it's not enough, it would be better that you never had children. There's a, a cultural faith here, and we'll put this on the screen. Just doing Christian activities like church is not the same thing as being surrendered to Jesus and living in daily community with his church. Amen. It's just not the same thing, right? Attending, and, and listen, if you've never been here before and you're here because it's Good Friday, I'm glad you're here. So here, if you hear nothing else, we're really glad you're here, right? And we love you, and we're glad you're here, if I haven't said that, right? So that was missed. But being here for Good Friday doesn't make you a follower of Jesus, right? Just, you know... Right? And being here on Sundays doesn't make us followers of Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's actually following Jesus. Right? It's actually living a life that is connected to Jesus. And yes, that life runs through the church. Right? That this is a family of families. This is a family or a group or a collection of families of people following Jesus together as Jesus created us to do this journey together. And so it's not enough to just be religious. It's never enough to go through the motions. Just apply that to anything else. Apply that to your marriage or to your parenting. If you're just going through the motions as a parent and making sure you pack them a lunch, but you don't really engage with your children or love your spouse or talk to your friends, like, what would it be? And so Jesus, from this, speaks to the religious and reminds them that it's not enough. Amen. Verse 32, he says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Right, we've all seen the, the Golgotha, three crosses kind of thing, and, and sometimes we forget that crucifixion was a form of punishment, it was a death penalty amongst the Roman Empire for well over 100 years, right, for hundreds of years, actually. And that countless people were crucified Jesus was not alone in being crucified. In fact, in this moment, he's being crucified between two others 
who were, it says, criminals. That's kind of a, a repetition of things because in order to be crucified, you had to be convicted of a crime. Well, except for Jesus. And, and as we've heard the story of this, as he goes through and, and the religious leaders are calling for him to be put to death, which to have a religious infraction is not a capital punishment. And at points, the, the leadership, the Roman leadership, looks at him and just, listen, this doesn't have anything to do with us, right? Pilate says, I don't really find anything wrong with this guy. You guys deal with him, right? But see, Jeruz the, the Judaism or the Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't have the authority to put someone to death. They were under Roman rule. Only Romans could put people to death. And that was when they were convicted of something. And so here comes this situation where the, he, Jesus arrives into Jerusalem and they're shouting to make him a king. But then he kind of hears and receives kind of those shouts, but then also rides in on a donkey, which is antithetical to being a king. And so he's not trying to be king. He's not trying to overthrow any Roman authority or Jewish authority or anything as he kind of trots into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so as the religious leaders call for his death, and as we read through the Gospels, we know they've been trying to put him to death for a long time. For the three years he was in vocational ministry, many, many times when he, as an itinerant preacher and healer, he would be with a crowd of people and the religious leaders would want to put him to death. And we see these conversations where they try and trap him in things. And clearly, they don't. So now here's their moment. They're calling him to be king. Well, let's seize this moment. So they ask for his death. And they petition for his death. And they push for his death. And really, they get what they want. Really, on threat of a riot. That there's the belief that if we don't crucify this Jesus, there's going to be a riot among the crowd. And there's this, this switch that goes from Palm Sunday to about four days later. So here they're shouting for him to be king, and here they're shouting crucify him. They say, well, we have this tradition of releasing someone. How about Jesus, which we don't really have any problems with. We don't know what he's done even, except you're mad at him. Or Barabbas, this bad guy. And they yell for Barabbas to be released. And so here is Jesus going to be crucified among people who deserve probably to be crucified. We don't know much else other than they were criminals. They'd been convicted of something. And we have a little dialogue with them. But Jesus is crucified between them, giving this, this, this stark image, if you will, this thing that we can kind of see in our minds and imagine as Jesus is there. And we get very different responses from the two others who are crucified. Verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, others say Golgotha. That's the meaning of it, the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Crucifixion was this Roman punishment. It was a form of torture, death. And the Romans had taken, great, gone through great lengths to figure out how to torture someone to death, to how to prolong it, to make it as vicious and as painful and as violent as it could be protracted over time so that the person would suffer. When we say something is excruciating, like we smack our finger and we say, oh, it's excruciating, and really it's not, but we say that, right? 
we stub our toe, no, whatever, but we break an arm or we have a migraine or whatever it might be, and we use the word excruciating that comes from the words excrucis, from the cross, that this was such a violent death that it, it, it garnered its own term for pain. And so in the case of Jesus, he was beaten, uh, and you, you've seen the flagellum, these these long pieces of leather with bone and rock and glass kind of sewn into it. And that it would, when they would whip someone, it would kind of grab the skin and they would tear away. And then you just imagine as they, and I know many of you have seen movies and seen The Passion, which is graphically shows how this goes, how this occurs. And at one point they flip Jesus over to whip the front of him because the back is destroyed, Right? Others say that he was beaten beyond recognition in Scripture. Beaten beyond recognition. You couldn't really tell who he was at this point. And then, imagine that. You kind of take that. And I just, I know, I go out and get a little sunburn, and then I got to grab my backpack for work, and I complain. And he is just beaten, and then they lay a cross on him, and he begins to walk with it, and he can't. He just can't carry it. And so Simon of Cyrene is tasked with the job of carrying the cross the rest of the way. And so then they would get them, and you've seen them laid down on the wood and, and stretched out, and they would nail the hands and the feet, and they would do so in such a way where the arms were stretched out, the legs were bent, and there's this place below the feet. And the idea was that, that crucifixion actually, as you were hanging there, would suffocate you. And so by nature, by desiring to live, you would push up on nailed feet so that you could breathe. Again, taking your back up against the cross, stepping down onto feet that had been nailed to this cross. And so you would cause yourself pain to stay alive because that's what you wanted. You want to live. The instincts in your body cause you desire to breathe. And so here's Jesus. In this literally excruciating moment, as he is being crucified between people that have been convicted of something such that they should die. And here is Jesus, in this moment, being put to death for us. But not just in some simple kind of death penalty in America, modern day, 2021 way but in this literally suffering for a lengthy time. In fact, you know the story how they break the legs of the people on the cross and they didn't have to because Jesus already is dead. And I know that's a part that's ahead of this, but that was so that they could no longer push up and keep themselves alive. And so they literally would have to break their legs so they couldn't push up. And so here goes this process of hanging on nailed arms and and hanging there on a beaten body and and literally suffocating. And then your body, just with this desire internally to live, pushes up, causing all this pain so that you can breathe again and then hang there. And the visual is Jesus, literally God become human for us, literally just hanging between God and humanity, between heaven and earth, suspended there for us. Verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. In this moment, he prays that the people that are crucifying would be forgiven. They don't know what they're doing, God. Forgive them. I read through some, some theologians, some living, most living, one not. And I captured these quotes. I just want to read these to you. Kent Hughes in, uh, on a commentary called That You May Know the Truth from Luke. He says, body and soul recoiled. The initial shock of crucifixion had rendered him paralyzed and quivering. Physical disbelief screamed from severed nerves. Even greater spiritual horror closed in. He would soon become sin. It was just then that Jesus prayed forgiveness for his enemies, just when the nails were piercing and the cross was thrusting into the ground. Just as things get worse and most painful, Jesus asks for those who are crucifying him to be forgiven. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian Spurgeon, in his work called The First Cry from the Cross, says, Our blessed Redeemer persevered in prayer, even when the cruel iron rent his tender nerves and blow after blow of the hammer jarred his whole frame with anguish. And this perseverance may be accounted for by the fact that he was so in the habit of prayer that he could not cease from it. That his life had been lived out so in prayer to God. You know that thing that the church in America is so good at. That he was so accustomed to praying that he just prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't even know. Philip Ryken in Luke writes, If Jesus was willing for the Father to forgive the very men who murdered him, then what sinner is beyond the reach of his mercy? Surely anyone who repents will be saved. When his enemies said crucify, Jesus said forgive. And when a man who says that is willing to forgive anyone, even people like us, no matter what we have done, as long as we come to him by faith. If Jesus will forgive them, what would prevent him from forgiving me and you? Back in Luke 23, verse 35, it says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. That's the, Jude the Jewish rulers. Saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Here's what's funny. They admit that he saved other people. And yet they're so hard-hearted, they're unwilling to let him save them. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They continue to ask for more. You saved others, save yourself. Hey, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. As they mock him on the cross. Here's a note for you. Many always ask to see more proof, but are never willing to surrender to Jesus. The risk is missing Jesus altogether. When we stand around and say, well, I need more proof. Like, well, how much more proof do you need? Right? What is it exactly you're waiting for? Because it seems to be that there's always something. That there's always something, well, I just, I'm not over this line. I'm just not there, right? Yes, I've seen this. I've seen this. And, and yeah, I get it up to this point. But man, the risk is missing Jesus altogether. As they stand around and said, he did save others. He, he raised the dead. He healed people. He did this. He did that. We see it in our stories. We see the transformation in me and in you. What exactly, if this is you, are you waiting for? What, what is it 
that kind of tips you over that line of faith. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So here's the irony. He wasn't convicted of anything. Judaism, the, the religious elite, had brought him forward for blasphemy, which is a religious infraction. Roman leadership could care less. They were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. This was just one god among many to them. And, and this didn't matter. That Jesus was claiming to be God didn't matter to them. But it mattered to the religious elite. And so they say, we want him crucified. And then the Roman leadership says, but we've found nothing that he's done wrong. We'll crucify him anyhow. And at the threat of a, of a riot, they succumb to the crowd. Again, the same crowd who said, be the king, Hosanna, here's Jesus, we want you to be king, four days later. Crucify him. And so they hang him on this cross, and his crime, being the king of the Jews. You see the people on the right, the, the, the men on the right and the left of him had whatever their crime was, if they had raped somebody or murdered somebody or stolen somebody, it said that over them. Like, here is so-and-so being crucified for this crime. And then here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. Because Pilate had nothing else to write. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So as Jesus is hanging there between the two, one criminal... It says, just railed, yells at him, are you not the Christ? You said you were the Christ. Everybody knows which, who you are. Right? Back then, things were different, but this is the guy who's trending online. Everybody knows who it is. Nobody's missing the point of who Jesus is. Though he's beaten beyond recognition, everyone knows who Jesus is. He's the one who's claimed to be the fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, in all of that, not only the promises of God to be fulfilled in him, he's actually claimed to be God on many occasions. That's why the religious hate him. Because they're unwilling to believe. And so they say, aren't you the Christ? Save us. Get all of us out of here. Like, if I'm the Christ, why am I taking you with me, Right? Now save us all. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, meaning the first criminal. Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. So here's what, they, so here's what the second criminal says. We're justly being crucified. This horrible, torturous death we deserve. You deserve it, I deserve it, but he doesn't. Why do you yell at him? Why do you taunt him? Don't you realize the condemnation we're under, he says? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, he says. This man has done nothing wrong. He recognizes he needs, he deserves this. I think that there's a big contrast. One wants to be set free, even though he's guilty, and one understands he's receiving his penalty because he's guilty. And I think that's where we struggle sometimes, is to understand how guilty we are. I think of passages like Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. 
right? None are good. All have gone astray. Like spiritually, we're depraved. So Jesus comes in fulfillment of God's promise of hope from the garden of eat all the way forward as God has promised that someone will come and overcome evil, that he will have victory over Satan and sin and death. And so God himself, the Son of God, the Word of God becomes flesh and enters into our existence, our life, to live like us, to endure the things we endure, even the taunting and mocking of others, even death. How, and I say this, if you go to church, you hear this all the time, but how the author of life dies, I will never figure out. How does the God who creates life from nothing die? And so God in human flesh endures this death for us. And he does this while praying, Father, forgive them. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. You're just punching your ticket. You're just going through the motions. Forgive the, the Romans who are killing me. They don't even know what they're doing. As he says these things, we watch the gospel be fulfilled. That God loves us so much that he's given his son for our life. That to cover our sin, our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, that he himself paid our penalty. And so now we remember, okay, now, do I understand that like this guy? Am I just over here saying, save us, but I don't get it like this one. Verse 42, and he says, and he, and, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's that easy. Right? It's that easy. But, but there's a lot leading up to this, right? He knows he's guilty. He knows that this is deserved for him. He pushes back, like, hey, listen, don't you get it? He's innocent. We're guilty. Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can I be with you? It's that easy. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We podcasted all last year. We podcasted through the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's this place in the catechism that just drives me crazy, and it's a translational Error change in history. It's not the original place, the way it was written. But inside the Heidelberg Catechism is the Apostles' Creed. And inside the, inside the Creed itself, it says that Jesus descended. And the Creed says that Jesus died and descended, went to hell. He didn't go to hell. Jesus is going to say in a minute, it's finished. Right? John, the Gospel of John records that. Famous, it is finished, and then Jesus gives up his life because that's what pays for our sin. Jesus doesn't go to hell. Jesus looks at the criminal, and he says, today we'll be in paradise. Amen. I mean, i got to come back in a minute, but we'll be there today, right? Because sin is covered. Jesus needs do no more for us. This is enough. And he said to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What would stop us from saying that? What would stop us from knowing that we don't deserve it? But knowing that if Jesus can pray for the people crucifying and forgive them, he can clearly forgive us. What could ever stand in the way of that? 
Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. If you're around for Exodus last year, last fall, you got to this place where they build the tabernacle and they put that thick veil up between the presence of God and everyone else. And it's at this moment when sin is covered that Jesus has covered our sin that God, from top to bottom, tears this veil. It's, this, it's just this release of God's presence to us. It's this beautiful kind of Old Testament fulfillment of everything that stands between God and us is now removed. Verse 46, and it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Not only is there one more onlooker, God, but what we see is Jesus doing this on his timetable, willingly giving his life for us, willingly enduring all of this for us. Jesus is not there helpless, and God is doing Jesus is doing this. And when it is completed, he finishes it. And he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, now then a centurion saw what had taken place, and he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I don't know much more about the centurion. I, I don't know, did he become a Christian that day? Did he end up following Jesus? Did he join the church? What did he do? I, I don't know. Here's what I know. Even if he did, even if this moment was that pivotal conversion moment and, and from here forward he's a Christ follower, even if all that's true, here's what I know about the centurion. He missed that time before that when he could have been following Jesus. When Jesus was there, when Jesus was teaching, when Jesus was healing, when Jesus was Jesus, those that didn't follow him, and there are many, his brothers are known to have rejected him during his ministries. And then when he's resurrected from the dead, then they begin to follow him, which is a compelling reason, by the way. I saw you die, and now you're alive. I know we're getting already to Sunday, but even your little brother will follow you at that moment, right? The centurion, even if he starts now, look what he could have had. And that's always my just kind of what's in my heart for us is maybe, maybe there's a chance tomorrow. Maybe, maybe tomorrow's never going to come, but maybe. Let's just assume there is. We don't want to miss what Jesus has for us today. We don't want to miss all that we could have now. I remember at Oasis, at a church I used to pastor, this older man came to faith. He came to faith in his 70s. So older, not old, old, but older, right? Late 60s, early 70s, and I remember as he sat, or we did this men's study in the morning, and I remember him saying, why, why didn't I come to faith sooner? Just lamenting that he could have been, that he could have had what he had now sooner. That he could have been with Jesus more. That's what this centurion reminds me of. So missing out, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. The centurion may have come to faith, but he missed out on knowing Jesus personally before the crucifixion. Right? What are we missing when we wait? 
And that, maybe you're a follower of Jesus already, and, and maybe all of that is true of you, but what about not repenting of this thing that God's been telling me for a long time, but I keep putting it off? What do we miss when we kind of ignore Jesus and, and, until we like, kind of have this moment up here, we think it'll happen up here, but what about now? And if you don't know Jesus, why not now, Right? Well, let's not look backwards and say, gosh, I wish, I just wish I'd known. And that's assuming we get that opportunity. It's like all of us who are saving for retirement. All of us, bar none, all of us wish we started sooner, right? Am I wrong? Anybody start too early? No. All right. It's like that. You'll never look back and say, you know, I could have waited longer. You'll always look back and say, why did I wait so long? Why didn't I listen sooner? I know that's my life. What I hope is that's not your life anymore. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. How can we not? I, I, Jesus, I just, how can we read this story with anything other than complete, just kind of abandoning ourselves to you? When your words are to others, you're cautioning them, you're calling them along, you're praying for them. You're welcoming them into your kingdom even as you suffer. In the other gospels, we get four other statements, and one of them, you care for your mom. God, I just think of these, and I just think of like my hard time, whatever the hard times are for me that are not this, for sure they're not this have a bad day. And the last thing I'm doing is thinking of everybody else. I'm always caught up in me. And yet, Jesus, in the moment when you rightly should have been caught up in you, innocent yet being crucified, beyond pain, there you are praying for others. Let that challenge us, Lord. Let your forgiveness, that you, you cry out for those who are actually the ones killing you. Say, Father, forgive them. They don't know any better. You had to have said that to me or for me for so long. Lord, let us know better now. And let us respond. Let us not go through the religious activities with, and, and miss you. Let us not ask for saving and yet want nothing, want to give nothing to you like the criminal. Just save us. Oddly, Lord, the human being in the story, other than you, that is any good at all, is a crucified criminal who recognizes your innocence and recognizes who you are and humbly says, can I be with you? Let us learn from him, Lord. That we may be with him, meaning with you. It's in your name.